Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato. And uh, I want to thank you for joining us for an important discussion uh, about an innovation in health insurance design that has actually been shown to reduce prices for a, a, a host of different healthcare services. We have with us today one of the leading uh, researchers uh, that has looked into these experiments. Uh, and we're going to uh, uh, receive, uh, and we're going to get comment on uh, those uh, those studies and that research by one of the leading, uh, another one of the leading health economists in the United States. So presenting first will be James Robinson, uh, the Leonard D. Schaefer Endowed Chair in Health Economics and Policy, and the director at the Berkeley Center for Health Technology at the University of California, Berkeley. And uh, Professor Robinson, with a number of his colleagues, have looked into these experiments that have been done by Safeway, by the University of, uh, I'm sorry, by the, uh, uh, the CalPERS uh, uh, State Employee Health Benefits System in California, uh, to try to bring down some of the excessive prices that those employers have been paying for medical care. And commenting on that paper will be, well, me, but also, more importantly, Mark Pauley, who's the Benheim Professor of Healthcare Management, Business Economics, and Public Policy at the Wharton School of Business. So with no further ado, I'll ask you if we can go ahead and put uh, Professor Robinson's slides up on the screen, and we will first hear from Professor Robinson. Thank you. If you can see these slides. OK. Um, those, that's, that's my slide. Yeah, so here we go. Slide, there, there. Looks good. Great. First of all, I want to say thank you, Mike, uh, and all of you for inviting me uh, to come share my thoughts and get your feedback on reference pricing. Um, my view is that this is a promising idea. It's had some very interesting and successful initial applications. The big question is, is this going to remain a small uh, curiosity within the health insurance world, or will, it, will this going to ramp up and become something big? Um, and I don't know the answer to that, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. I also wanted to thank uh, Mark for taking the time to come down uh, for this and join us on this. In many ways, reference pricing is, is yet another <clears throat> experiment or in, in innovation, if you will, in, in the attempt to deal with uh, the issue of moral hazard, which Mark highlighted way back when, and we've been struggling with it ever since. Uh, so what I sort of want to come, where did this come from in, in the United States? It uh, did not come from uh, European reference pricing. In Europe, as if you follow the pharmaceutical sector, you know they use both therapeutic and geographic reference pricing. It's not where it came from. Where it came from was self-insured employers, as they got their data warehouses in better shape, uh, they could actually analyze what they were paying. What they saw overwhelmingly jumping out that their, of their own data is price variation. Um, and <clears throat> price variation is fine <clears throat> in the normal economy. It reflects differences in quality, location, and convenience. But in healthcare, it was more than that. It was extreme. It was tenfold or more than tenfold variation in prices for the same product or the same service in the geogra same geographic market. And these were not list prices. These were off of claims data. These were paid prices. Um, and so what they reflect in healthcare is, um, you know, on the, on the supply side of the market, uh, for services you have a very strong consolidation of local geographic markets, as, uh, as you know, and for the, on the product world you have uh, different kinds of patent and exclusivity protections, which provide uh, some monopoly power. Uh, and then on the demand side, most importantly, which we're going to focus on today, is you have a 
largely price unconscious consumer. Uh, most people have some sort of cost sharing in their health insurance, but most health insurance designs m put the incremental or marginal dollar uh, on the insurer rather than on the patient. Um, and the sort of like, take an example, if a patient has a $1,000 deductible, uh, but we're talking about a, a, a diagnostic or surgical procedure where the prices in the market range from $2,000 to $10,000, the patient pays $1,000 either way, has no real incentive to go to the, uh, the $2,000 provider rather than the $10,000 provider. On the, on the drug side, they have a copay. The copay is based on whether they go to tier one, $10 generic, tier two is 25 for preferred brand, tier three usually about 50 bucks. So they have some differential there, but the, the real prices that underlie, that, that are in, of those drugs in those tiers are much wider. The price variation is much, much wider. Let me give you some just so the employer started to notice this. Let me give you some examples. This is uh, CalPERS data on um, colonoscopy prices, state of California. Each um, dot is a facility. The blue facilities are hospitals that have ambulatory centers that do colonoscopy, among other things. Uh, and the red dots are the freestanding non-hospital uh, facilities. And we just sorted them from the cheapest to the most expensive. So you look at this thing and you say, wow, they're paying less than $1,000 up to about $8,000 for colonoscopies. There's no evidence that quality varies across these uh, things. And generally, that the hospitals are much more expensive than the freestanding centers for this. So if you're CalPERS, <coughs> and uh, this is uh, you're in the midst of the Great Recession, the state of California is almost bankrupt, and you're looking at this kind of thing, you're saying, why are we doing this? Why are we doing Once again, these are not list prices. These are paid prices. Okay? So they put reference price. They said, we'll put 1500 bucks. That's that black line. And that's what we'll pay. And that's all we'll pay. And if you want to go to one of the more expensive ones, employee, that's fine. We're, there's not a choice-constraining thing here, but you pay the difference yourself. Another example. This is from Safeway. This is lab tests. These are the 10 most um, frequently used lab tests for the Safeway population. And just give you sort of a basic metabolic panel, ranged from the fifth percentile is about six bucks, and it goes up to 126 bucks. This is the same thing. Don't give me a quality story about this variation, okay? Uh, uh, PSA test ranges from 12 bucks to 88 bucks. They look at this stuff and they're going, why are we doing this? We're Safeway. We have a gross, we run grocery stores. Our customers will drive across town to save $4 on a bottle of shampoo. And our employees will go, will, will spend $70 extra of our money so it's not to drive across town, right? There, what's, there's a problem here. Here's a, here's a drug example. Rita Trust is an alliance of Catholic employers, a diocese. They, they have Catholic schools. They employ clergy, et cetera. They buy insurance for those people. This is from the pharmacy benefit. These are their 20 biggest uh, therapeutic classes in terms of drug classes. Um, you see, and I've just put here uh, the, the low-priced drug to the high-priced drug in the same therapeutic class. So just to take something like the SSRIs, they range from 10 bucks to 200 bucks. ACE inhibitors from six bucks to 50 bucks. These are, once again, paid prices. They say, like, why, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Okay, that leads us to reference pricing. So what is reference pricing? Reference pricing is simply 
the, the sponsor, be it the employer or the insurer, looks at the continuum of prices and says, I will pay up to some level, and then if the, if the, the, the patient, the consumer, chooses a more expensive option, which is fine, they pay the difference, the full difference, themselves. All right? um, and the, in some sense, the patient gets to choose their level of cost sharing by choosing their provider or their facility, or in the case of drugs, the particular drug, the brand, uh, that they pick. I think there's a variety of ways of analogizing what is reference pricing. In some ways, I could think about it as a reverse deductible. Think about a deductible. Deductible, uh, the, let's say $1,000 deductible, the patient pays the first 1000 bucks, then the insurance company starts paying. That leaves the marginal dollar and the price difference dollar with the insurer. Reference pricing flips it. The insurance company pays the first $1,000, if whatever the cutoff is, and then it's the, it's the patient's dollar after that. It's also, you could call it defined contribution. Those of you that work in, uh, have familiar with the health insurance world know defined contribution. In the insurance, the employer sets a, a fixed amount of money that they will contribute to the, to the premium each um, month or whatever it is, and if the employee picks a, a more expensive plan, the employee pays the difference. So the employee is fully at risk for the marginal dollar. And that's what reference pricing is, driven down to the level of the procedure or the drug or the test or whatever. And another way of analogizing is that for those of us that travel on work, uh, for work purposes, our employer may uh, pay our travel expenses, but up to a limit. I, you know, the University of California adopts the federal government uh, per diems, and so they, they, for every city, uh, I think in the world, the federal government says what the, what the daily rate that they will pay for meals and incidentals and the daily rate for hotel. And if you, you can go to anywhere you want. I can go anywhere I want, but if I choose a more expensive place, I, I pay the difference myself. Sometimes I do. You know, I want to go out to a, a particularly nice restaurant. I pay the difference myself. I'm okay with that, personally. All right? So that's reference price. Okay? Uh, we've done... Um, we were approached by these employers and, and uh, done a, to, do, to evaluate what, what happened, really. Because they, of course, had their consultants in there, and they would do these before and after, back-of-the-envelope studies, but no control group and et cetera. So uh, we've done a, a variety of studies, which have been published in mostly in medical journals, uh, putting on the procedure, um, and it's always a difference in difference approach. I won't spend a lot of time on this. If you care, you can uh, read the articles. Uh, basically, the rate of change for those subject, the before and after for those subject to reference pricing compared to the before versus after for, for a comparison group not subject to reference pricing, controlling for a whole variety of things. Because there's a lot of things changing out there in the wide world besides reference pricing. Okay. And we really, our, our endpoints are always uh, some variant of this. The probability that the patient selects a low price provider or product, you know, below the line. Secondly, the average price paid before and after, uh, in other words, uh, which is going to be the savings. And then what about the effect of the, on the consumer cost sharing, the consumer's out of pocket before and after? Right, different people care about this. So just one question. Okay, does implementation of reference pricing Induce consumers to change their choice of provider or product. All right. So here's just, uh, and there's, like I say, a lot of articles here. You can, if you want, but there's a couple of illustrations, and I'm just giving you the, the simple version. Here is back to colonoscopy. Um, uh, CalPERS implements it in 2011. You see the uh, the percentage of them that were going to the cheaper uh, ambulatory surgery centers was below. The comparison group was all Anthem uh, members in the state of California, so it's a very broad population. It was below that, and then it just jumps. 
People move. When they're paying, when it's their dollar, they move. Another example, this is drugs, this is RETA uh, data. Uh, you see that uh, before they implemented reference pricing, they were, the, 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 the probability that they chose the low price drug within their therapeutic class was below the comparison group, and then it jumped afterwards. Right. Another question, so what? What, about the, what effect does this have on prices paid? Okay, this is, of course, what the employer cares about. Here's colonoscopy. After implementation, CalPERS is red, Anthem is blue, of course. The, pri the price paid really plunges, okay, because they're going to the cheaper place. I mean, there's no mystery here. This is all the thing. You can say, well, how much of this is um, uh, caused by moving to places that already were charging less versus changes in prices of those places that formerly were charging more? That's a good question. And here, it's all, it's all uh, moving to these ambulatory centers. Okay, there's no hospital saying, I'm reducing my price here. But on the orthopedic surgery inpatient procedure side, that actually has been studied. We've done time on that. 50% uh, of the hospitals that were above the line, if you will, high priced, reduced their prices after implementation. Anthem, which ran this thing, said it, they had never, ever experienced this. Hospitals calling up and uh, demanding to reopen the contracts and reduce their prices. It was quite striking. Uh, it's because ortho surgery is a big ticket, visible thing. CalPERS, the biggest private payer in the state of California, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, mostly, I don't, I, it, mostly it's going to be the, the change effect because uh, until this was more widespread. Anyway, here's another example. Here's, uh, these are Safeway data, lab tests, average price paid by Safeway. Uh, the control group is Anthem, uh, no change. Safeway company, you can see when reference pricing was implemented. Here is RETA, uh, drug data. Um, and you see uh, RETA here is uh, blue. And so they were paying more until they implemented reference pricing than the control group, and then they went down. Cost sharing went up for RETA members here. So it turns out that across all the different studies, cost sharing can either go up or go down, depending, apparently. because. Patients, when they move to the cheaper option, not only do they not pay reference pricing, but if they've got any kind of a deductible thing also, they, they save money there. Okay. Uh, next question. What is the range of impacts exerted by reference pricing on different types of procedures? And this was a, this table's in a paper we published this month in Health Affairs, if you, if you like that. This just goes over all the different um, endpoints that we've studied, except for drugs, because the drug stuff is still in, under review. Uh, and just sort of, so the first column here is, the percentage point increase in the use of the low price facility or product. And you see it ranges from, I don't know, a low, I guess here, a cataract is 9%, and a high 18% for lab tests, something like that. And then the, the percent reduction in price ranges from a low of about 10% here for MRI, and it goes up to about 30% for lab, but it's mostly in the range of about 20%. These are impacts in the first two years of implementation. Okay, now we just, let's just pause for just a second. Those of you that are health policy wonks, when was the last time you heard of anything that reduced spending by 20% in the first two years after implementation? I mean, anything. Okay. Now, let's put this whole thing in context. Uh, what actually, I'm going to 
leave for the discussion sake. How this might compare, for example, to high deductible plan designs or narrow network designs, that might be something we talk about. What I want us to talk about really with you, and then I'll wrap up, is the, uh, what we call the American question, which is, if you're so smart, how come you ain't rich? And if this is such a good idea, and it's been so successful where it's applied, how come it's not very broadly adopted by employers and or insurers you know, and, and why is it still um, a, a marginal a curiosity, really, out there in, in the wide world? And uh, the possible, it's just it's new, and, it's, and people haven't heard about it, and, they haven't, and there's inertia in the system, and uh, people are looking for new things to do. And uh, particularly in the area of pharmaceutical and specialty pharmaceutical pricing, that's my area of focus uh, right now is specialty pharmacy uh, pricing strategies. And uh, reference pricing is certainly being kicked around in that domain as a, both on the employer side as well as on the policy walk side. Uh, but on the other hand, maybe reference pricing has real structural uh, implementation problems that, you know, kind of nice idea, but it, but it won't work. Right? And I don't know the answer to that. Okay, let's think about it. What are some of the challenges? Breadth of applicability. Reference pricing is best designed for shoppable services, tests and treatments where the consumer has the time and the capability to make an informed choice between option A, option B, and option C. And well, isn't that uh, isn't a lot of healthcare spent in other kinds of contexts? And the answer is yeah. On the other hand, acute non-emergency services account for a very large part of total spending, especially when one thinks that, like, even for patients with ongoing chronic conditions, let's say diabetes, uh, the big dollars that are spent on diabetes is not so much just the routine stuff, but it's when particular patients they need to go into the hospital. And then the economic question is, okay. Which hospital? Right. And that's usually typically a non-emergency admission, by the way, something like that. There's some emergencies, but usually it's the, so the, it's the uh, acute exacerbations of chronic diseases which cause chronic diseases to be so expensive. All right. Um, uh, secondly, consumer information on price is, is very difficult and, and confusing, but it's getting better. It's getting better. And especially if we had more coherent pricing structures, such as certain more, somewhat more bundling stuff, so the consumer, the consumer wants to know what's the cost of the whole thing, not what's the cost of the, each component. Like we buy cars. We don't buy transmissions and, and, and supply and, you know, on all the different pieces of, of the car, right? That's what we want to do, okay? Uh, and I've talked with um, provider organizations about this, and interestingly enough, even those that are paid on a capitated or some sort of value-based basis appreciate that the consumer needs to have an incentive to go to the, the lab or the surgery center or whatever that the ACO wants them to go to because the, the, the ACO is going to send them to ones that are more affordable because the ACO is paid on some sort of population basis. And so they're, try, they're paid by Medicare or the private plans to, to, to stay within a budget, but then the consumer on, on their PPO platform or Medicare fee-for-service has no constraints. Reference pricing would be really good in that. Administrative burden, this is true. This is real. Administration burdens are very important. Uh, administrative pricing requires that, the, that a payment limit be certified or established for each procedure or product in each market, okay? And there's no easy, I don't have an easy answer to this one. Uh, you can use a formula, like say, I've used the 60th 
percentile in the price. Uh, Rita uses just the cheapest price. There's a low price drug. Bingo, that's the reference price. Uh, there's different ways of doing this, okay? Um, part of the essence of reference pricing, I think, and I think this con contrasts a little bit with some of the deductible things in, in practice, if, if not in principle, is that under the reference pricing uh, sponsors really feel under some obligation to help the consumer identify where's the low price option. Help, help the consumer save money. Okay? Go there for the cheaper test or cheaper procedure or, or go to this set. Here, we're going to give you a list like CalPERS gave them, actually just a list of hospitals. These, all these hospitals, we pay in full because they're below the line. Any hospital that's not on this list, you know, you might be, you don't know what you're going to get. And that's what the consumers want. I, I, when CalPERS launched this thing, I was giving a talk to a hospital, all the people management from a hospital chain in California. And I happened to have this, you know, they just put out the list of the hospitals, the names of the hospitals above the line, below the line. So I said, well, here it is. This is the CalPERS list. So this guy, this, this senior vice president, just grabs this thing out of my hand, turns and hands it to his assistant and says, fax that to the CEO of every one of my hospitals. I want them to explain to me how they're going to get below that line. All right. Uh, insufficient competition. Um, Reference pricing requires that there's options. If there's more than one therapeutically equivalent provider or product within the relevant market or therapeutic test, so that you could, so there is a cheaper option. And as you know, there's both consolidation and. Uh, well, I think that uh, as, as as demonstrated by the colonoscopy um, example, that reference pricing actually can help deconsolidate markets because it can help give it can create the incentive for the consumer to go from the high acuity to the low acuity setting and generally high acuity is more consolidated it's called it hospital and lo low acuity is less consolidated because there's lower barriers to entry there's fewer economies of scale in ambulatory surgery the basic trend of technology is to allow more care to move from the hospital inpatient to the hospital outpatient, from the hospital outpatient to the ambulatory surgery center, from the ambulatory surgery center to the physician office, from the physician office to the patient home. That's what, that's what Silicon Valley and that's what the, the, the med tech people are, mo are moving on. Hospitals, of course, are buying. They're moving down that same list, buying the, the ambulatory surgery centers, employing the surgeons, buying the home health agencies, moving to so that they can bring it all back up there and price it, reprice it up to their level. And the consumer, why should they care? Except if there's a reference price, as you saw, I mean, what CalPERS did was really move market share out for colonoscopy as well as other ambulatory procedures from hospital-based to freestanding centers. Do nothing else, they saved a lot of money, as well as kind of fuel the, the deconsolidation of the market. Okay. It's also cons uh, consistent with center of excellence contracting for even for high-end major surgical procedures where um, you know, some employers, as you know, are, are contracting for, with regional centers, high-volume centers, such, you know, it could be Hopkins, Cleveland Clinic, whatever, and they, they get a bundled price, and then they create a benefit design for their patients, which says if you go there, it's cheaper for you than if you go to the local place until the local place also signs one of these contracts. Um, managing innovation. Um, within the, back to the drug world, um, what about innovation where there is um, drug classes where they're very innovative and there are no substitutes, orphan drug, etc. Well, 
that's, an, that's a difficult economic problem uh, generally. We actually want to encourage innovation in uh, therapeutic classes which don't have good treatments. And so the fact that they get uh, big profits in the initial period is not a, a bad thing. Um, but uh, my current area of work is to say, well, what if we had a reference pricing platform for drug classes where there are therapeutic substitutes, and then health technology assessment built on top of that, which could differentiate, well, how much better are, like, when there's new, like, within a, uh, within a class like rheumatoid arthritis, uh, the biopharmaceuticals, there are about 10 products, three mechanisms of action, and they are broad, broadly comparable, but not exactly comparable. Right? And so you need to do have health technology assessment to find out, well, how different are they? And, what's the, and then someone's got to put a price tag on that thing. Well, that's exactly what's done, of course, in the uh, German system. Uh, that's exactly what they do. Uh, and, and the d price differences are uh, negotiated out. Uh, alternatively, you could have a cost per quality kind of formula for those price, for those, for those price differences and put that on top of the basis. That's what uh, you would see in ICER. Um, uh, but it, so there's no easy solution to this, but that's the, that's the way, that's what I'm working on, and I don't know if you find that of interest at all, but still the basic principle is the consumer faces a uh, an incentive to pick the low price product among the set of, of therapeutically equivalent products. If there is a therapeutically different product in the same indication, the reference price could be different for this other set. Or they could, this could be combined with some sort of step therapy. You, know, you can think about different ways of doing this. But the world of specialty drugs now is ripe for this because the great pipeline of innovation has meant that there are now lots of drugs for multiple sclerosis, for RA, for psoriasis, for certain cancers. They're not exactly comparable, but with HTS, they're not that totally non-comparable either. Uh, and so the question is, how are we going to, you know, plunking them all in tier four with a 25% coinsurance and a bunch of top-down utilization management by the PBMs is, uh, you know, kind of like the worst approach. It's worst for the patient. All right. Uh, so anyway, I guess I got a little bit ahead of myself, and uh, I just want to say that's where I'm going. And then my last slide here, is reference pricing compatible with innovation? We all, uh, everybody on the purchaser side of the world uh, wants to find a way to make healthcare cheaper, uh, but recognize that uh, the drivers of uh, healthcare cost growth over time, long-term trend is driven by new drugs, devices, procedures, and all the specialties and facilities that go with that. And, and on average, uh, these new um, technologies have been beneficial to patients, and they've also been cost-effective to the population, all in all, on a cost-per-quality basis. The total lump sum benefits divided by the total lump sum increase in cost has been worth it. So what do we, how do we keep the innovation uh, going? Um, and the focus of reference pricing clearly uh, has been on moving market shares uh, and reducing spending and increasing competition. So it's nothing to do about financing innovation. Um, and to some extent, anything that reduces revenues reduces the potential for R&D. Okay? Um, but I think that what the life sciences industry needs and I do deal with the life sciences industry, is a clear and consistent message that if you develop a new thing that's really better, you'll get 
really a price premium. And if you develop something which is basically equivalent to what we've already got, you will not. And right now, that's really, you, there's not a consistent message from the market that that's the way it works. There's a, the message from the market is the amount of price premium you get depends on how strategic you are and how much chutzpah you have to just simply raise your price uh, and then how can you benefit from obscure little bottlenecks on supply or manufacturing or some, some weird process patent that you've come up with uh, to really drive your revenues. And so we see pr products which are dramatic breakthroughs, which are not getting the money they really deserve, really. And then we see products which are total um, uh, me-toos, to use an old drug, which are, which are making one heck of a lot of money, at least for a couple years, until the world catches up with them. So I, in my more uh, idealized uh, thinking about this whole thing, I see reference pricing as something that is a principle that can bring the consumer, the patient, into that dialogue. We want to pay cheapest possible within a class of equivalence. And we'll pay more for stuff that's better and can prove it's better. That's, and that's the hope. And that's where we're going here, bringing the pricing back in for the consumers. All right. So thank you, Mike. And um, Thanks. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, uh, it's a beautiful day outside today. I don't know why you're all in here, but uh, at least one uh, inference I take from that is, in contrast to the usual economist discussant, I'm not going to rain on this parade. I think this is a great idea, reference pricing, and uh, Jamie has done uh, the economics profession and, for that matter, the healthcare management profession a great service by being the bridge between uh, what most of us think about in theory and what's actually going on out there in the real world, but at the same time raising the important conceptual questions about uh, how does this really work uh, and so forth. So uh, I think there's uh, 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 a lot to be uh, discovered already from uh, reading his work on this subject, and he raised a whole host. I'll probably raise a few more, because the older I get, the more questions I have, and the less I know uh, about uh, what do we need to get this show on the road, or what are the various aspects of things that could uh, to have the characteristics of reference mm. pricing. Uh, one other thing I want to say in, at the outset, I'm the outgoing president of something called the Association, the American Society of Health Economists, Ash Econ. I've had to lose my Secret Service detail uh, now that I'm no longer president, uh, but uh, uh, I guess that's a small price to pay. Uh, but uh, when I was president-elect, uh, I gave a uh, talk at the uh, Ash Econ meeting. The best thing about the talk was the title, which was Wussonomics. And it was a, basically a lament that insurers have been wusses when it comes to dealing aggressively with uh, rising healthcare spending. They've been very timid uh, and uh, uh, not very innovative and looking always to Medicare to kind of give them cover for anything they're going to try to do. And I'm pleased to say, no doubt, it's because of my keynote address, but that seems to have changed, that uh, insurers are now becoming more aggressive and 
reference pricing is a good example of that, and it's probably a, a better example of a, a cost-reducing device than some of the uh, than most of the things, if not all of the things that Medicare has come up with in its innovative features in recent years, although a few of them are probably okay. Uh, so. Um, uh, so the first thing I'm going to do is um, ask the professorial question. Sure, it works in practice, but can it work in theory? Uh, and try to describe sort of from the point of view of insurance theory how reference pricing seems to fit in. And actually, this is a reason why I'm very positive and enthused about it. Why is it a good idea? Well, because it's one of several uh, things that are now emerging that are approximations of the ideal way to run an insurance plan and paying benefits an insurance plan, which is to pay an indemnity benefit, a fixed dollar benefit. It doesn't quite work this way anymore, I guess, but at first, or it used to be, um, uh, if you uh, bought auto collision coverage or if you have a car uh, and your car was a hit, not your fault, uh, what would happen is you would take it to somewhere for an estimate, maybe two, and then the insurance company would just send you a check for whatever the damages were, and uh, you could do whatever you wanted with that check. Uh, when I was at Northwestern, we lived on one of the busiest streets, and we parked our old junker car in front of the house. It got hit three times. I got three checks. We never repaired any of the dents because it was all rusted out from Chicago winters, but it actually made for a nice Christmas one year to collect all those checks. But the general idea, that's sort of the economist's ideal way of having insurance pay benefits, or, or to put it slightly more technical terms, an indemnity insurance pays um, um, X dollars on the uh, 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 if event Y occurs, uh, verifiable event Y, and that gives the uh, proper incentives to avoid moral hazard, uh, and even immoral hazard, uh, uh, because uh, at the margin, the person's got the money, so they're protected against the loss in their wealth from the event, but now they have incentives to seek out the lowest possible, uh, or a low price, whatever price they, they think is, however much they want to fix up their car, when they want to take it to Mako or back to the dealer or whatever, they, but it's their money now, not the insurer's money, and so they're making the right trade-offs, if, of course, they're properly informed about trade-offs between uh, money and uh, quality, or money and quantity, or for that matter, between their time to search for yet another lower-priced repair shop and, uh, and uh, whatever else they might do with their time. So that and so I guess um, it kind of goes without saying, and I guess I already said it, reference pricing seems very close to indemnity insurance. The only difference is if you found somebody cheaper than the reference price, um, I don't think you could cash the money, right? They don't gain share below. So that's all we need. Of course, that would uh, uh, that would uh, talking about. yeah that would drive Senator Sanders crazy. I guess bribing people to consume cheap medical care, but uh, but uh, that at least would be the economics ideal. Uh, so uh, uh, so this sounds like a good idea, and um, uh, it, it, there are some other things that are somewhat like it uh, that we already have and that we know actually work pretty well too. Uh, the one. That that occurred to me as most obvious is uh, uh, tiered health plans, uh, usually for prescription drugs, and I think people kind of know how they work. There's a, a, uh, a drug that's on the formula, and you'll pay 
low or maybe even zero copayment if you uh, buy that drug, and that's the drug that the company, the insurance company negotiated the lowest price for, presumably. Uh, but you can, if you and your doctor want, go up higher to a brand-name drug or uh, a different drug or a drug with, uh, you only have to take once a day rather than three times a day or doesn't upset your stomach as much. Uh, you won't have to pay the full additional price, which is what would happen in the reference pricing, but you will have to pay something, 40 or 50 or $100. So that's sort of a kinder and gentler reference pricing where at least some of the Incentive uh, to choose the lowest price option is still present, but if you should happen to have the bad luck of really needing the brand name drug, that they're not perfect substitutes, it gives you some cushion against it. And, that, and I think that's kind of the cosmic trade-off here, at least one of the cosmic trade-offs. There's going to be two that I'll mention, but one of the cosmic trade-offs is if there is variation in quality, Reference pricing still makes sense, but you have to decide as a consumer kind of where you want to fall on the quality spectrum and sort of set the reference price you'd like your insurer to pay to hit that point on the quality spectrum, and then it'll discourage you from buying things of higher quality that aren't worth the extra money, and you won't want to buy things of lower quality just to get the money back if you could do that. Uh, and so uh, at least my shining vision of how this might work is not have CalPERS do it for me. Uh, uh, but instead have a variety of health plans I could choose from that would uh, use different targets for their reference pricing, uh, high, medium, and low quality, uh, or, um, um, and I might as well drop the other shoe, uh, the other downside of reference pricing is you do have to search around, and maybe you have to drive across town to a poor, uh, uh, not as nice a neighborhood uh, for your colonoscopy where they have bulletproof glass or whatever it would be, and uh, uh, the, 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 but uh, that's a cost that some people might be willing to pay, but not others. So the idea would be that you would make a choice, uh, and my vision would be there'd be a variety of insurance plans that would offer you different choices as to where the reference price would hit. Uh, you'd pay more if you wanted a high reference price, but then you could be assured of high quality and probably finding a provider close by because you'd be up there with the high-priced ones, or you could buy a cheaper one. Uh, I've even named the cheaper one. It's called the Philly Insurance Plan, and its slogan is, we're not that great, but we sure are cheap. Do you have a problem with that? Uh, so you could uh, make that choice, and uh, that kind of uh, trade-off might make sense. And Jamie kind of hinted at this, sort of the, the ultimate uh, optimum optimorum of this choice model, uh, at least the way I've thought about it, would be where plans would choose a dollars per quality uh, cutoff. And they would make the payment that they would make for any treatment uh, e enough to buy from um, a convenient seller uh, the mix of services that are, uh, that, uh, 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 yield uh, uh, an improvement in outcome uh, that whose whose cost is uh, below the threshold. Uh, you could buy the fifty thousand dollar plan, um, and then you might uh, um, you know you might 
get uh, uh, metal implants for your knees instead of uh, titanium implants or uh, ceramic implants, or it might, you might get less uh, therapy afterwards, uh, or you could buy the $200,000 per quality plan. Of course, this is after the revolution when income is distributed more equally. This will be allowed to be mentioned in polite conversation, but that's the fundamental idea, and it's kind of like what we do with a lot of other things. We give people choices as to, do you want, do you want the one, do you want the one with leather, or you want the one with naugahyde, you know, or do you want the vacation plan that's going to give you all the pina coladas you ever dreamed of, or is it just going to be planter's punch, uh, you know, whatever it's going to be, and uh, at least in terms of a shining vision, uh, the good thing, I think, is, or the praiseworthy thing, is that the idea of reference pricing, to my mind, of course, everything looks that way to me lately, kind of fits into that, that you could that you could choose in this theory, back to the theory, you can choose what X dollars will be that will be paid when event Y occurs. If you want a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, quality when event Y occurs, you choose X to be a high number. If you, are willing, if you want to save money, you choose X to be a low number. It's up to you. So that's sort of the punchline, I think, on uh, how this might work and why it's a good idea. Uh, uh, and um, uh, I guess I just had a couple of additional comments on uh, the uh, qu question that uh, Jamie, thank goodness, raised, because so many of the discussions of improvements and how we're going to organize healthcare never do this. They keep saying, well, this is obviously a great idea. Uh, sounds like, it sounds great. Uh, let's advocate it. Uh, without uh, doing what actually in economics is known as the survivorship principle, seeing whether any entities actually did it and survived. And so that's the question that we have here. Uh, one explanation is, uh, or some explanations are in my Wissonomics article. They usually actually have to do less with economics and more with politics. Suppose CalPERS sets that $1,500 price and somebody maybe the mother of a state senator, uh, has a treatment prescribed that costs $3,000 more than that, and her doctor insists that's the only treatment she can have, somebody will get a call, and somebody will get some grief. And uh, uh, insurers, at least up to this point, maybe they're somewhat emboldened now, uh, have not been willing to tolerate that grief, uh, and have generally, as I said, moved in the shadow of Medicare. Uh, but uh, uh, the, and the other possibility is the absence of competition, um, although you don't really, uh, if firms have constant returns to scale, you just need to have a large number of firms. You actually don't need to have more firms coming in to do this. You just need to have a large number of firms that can, so the cheap ones can expand and the, and the expensive ones can contract. Uh, so that's a, a second uh, uh, a thing that could help. One, uh, I'll just make a couple more remarks here and see what's on page two. Uh, one, um, well, this is more actually like a question, but I think maybe if we knew the answer, we would know what we're talking about here. So Jamie showed you those enormous distributions of actual paid prices, not, I mean, list prices in healthcare is like the price on the back of the door of your hotel room, you know, this room rents for $1,000. Well, that's during a big football game or something. You got it for um, $139. Uh, but, uh, but paid prices vary a lot too. And the thing that's bothered me, and actually we're doing a little work on this, which is why I wanted to mention is, what's with the low price sellers? I mean, 
Are they terrible capitalists or what's wrong with them? Why are they charging such low prices when there's these other firms out there that are making sales to cost unconscious consumers who are charging high prices? Uh, well, the sort of technical economic answer would be the reason you charge a low price in general, aside from healthcare, is you want to attract more business. Uh, but uh, do we actually see the low price sellers doing things to attract more business? Not so much, but I had an undergraduate who wanted to do some research with me, so to keep him out of trouble, I said, uh, New Hampshire actually has a law where they publish prices. And I said, go on the websites of the high price firms and the low price firms for colonoscopy and the kinds of things Jamie was talking about and see what they say. And about half of the low price firms actually did mention on their website, we are low priced or we are high value or not all of them, not even the majority of them, but close to half of them said that. The expensive firm said, we are highest quality in the uh, Merrimack Valley, or, but said nothing whatsoever about prices. Uh, but there's still an issue here, I think, of uh, w w what it would take to have competition really break out. And I think it would be, um, uh, uh, and, ma and maybe there's a tipping point here, uh, when the low price sellers actually start trying to advertise uh, their low prices and draw customers to them then this kind of idea would take off. Uh, you wouldn't need the government to provide information, not even the government of New Hampshire, kindly as it is. Uh, you could even have the market provide the information. Of course, you'd have to have some quality controls on the information, but uh, boy, when I see the commercial that says a phone call will give you 15% off on your colonoscopy in 15 minutes, then I'll know Nirvana has arrived. Uh, so that's uh, the... That's, um, um, uh, a point I wanted to make and a, a puzzle that I have of why competition hasn't broken out like that, although I know this is medical care and life and death and we have to be a little more uh, 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 respectful, but uh, even so. Uh, the, the other issue is, uh, and I'm, I'm sure Jamie's thought about this too, maybe has some ideas. This is probably a product that appeals to some people and not others, and you might want to think of targeting. Now, CalPERS kind of does it for everybody because it's sort of a state within a state, but, but uh, you could imagine uh, who would like this sort of thing. Well, they would be people who are, I wouldn't necessarily say risk-loving, but willing to tolerate the risk that sometime the reference price might be less than the seller they really do want to use, whether it's because of convenience or because of some quality difference, but you save a lot of money and it'd be worth it. My MBA students are all uh, seeking to take risk. They'd be good candidates. An old fogey like me probably wouldn't. The other is there'd have to be hassle tolerance because the, some of the differences between, as I've learned with some recent health experience with my wife, between labs doing standardized tests is the test is standardized, but the response is not. The test gets lost. They don't call it back in time. This was a test, she was taking Coumadin, so it mattered to get the results back in time to adjust the dose. Uh, the paperwork wasn't filled out right, so we just put your sample on the shelf. Uh, so there are differences in, in uh, quality, even for uh, standardized quality tests in terms of the services applied. But for people who want to save money, who are willing to run the risk and tolerate the hassle, uh, of doing this, uh, it might well be worthwhile. Uh, and then I guess I have a final question, which is if this blossoms like we want it to, 
could be the answer not only to this price variation, uh, which we'd like to dampen down, and it saves some money. I think Jamie's estimate uh, of nationwide would be something like 8%, which in a um, $3 trillion industry is not chump change. But could it do what economists would really want it to do, which is cause other firms, the high-priced firms, to move their prices down? Uh, Jamie gave some anecdotes for that. Could it move the whole distribution of prices down? If it really uh, accelerated the spread of competition within the industry as a whole so that even the lazy people who didn't, <laughs> didn't run the risk and didn't buy the reference pricing coverage were able to have their insurer pay the low price, then um, uh, we actually could have lower health care costs and at least quality is equivalent to what we have now. Thank you. So now uh, you all know what nirvana looks like to a health economist. It's a 15-minute colonoscopy for 15% off. Um, I want to uh, thank, again, Mark and Jamie for, the, uh, for coming to, to talk about this really, these really incredibly important experiments and the, and the research that Jamie has done around them. And when I invited them to speak here, I didn't realize that we were going to be having this discussion in the midst of a debate or a non-debate or a collapsed and now maybe resurrected debate over repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act. But I think that Jamie's research actually has relevance for that debate, and I'm going to uh, uh, have some things to say about that. But if we could uh, put up my uh, slide, please. I don't see the mouse here. I would do this myself. Um, I think it's uh, useful to have that up there. But in the meantime, uh, I, I want to take a step back and talk about how there are really two ways to make healthcare affordable for people. One is you can provide them a subsidy. The other is you can get the prices down. Subsidies are problematic. If you want to subsidize Paul, first you have to rob Peter. Peter doesn't like that very much. Uh, both Peter and Paul end up producing less when you do that because if you subsidize everybody, the taxes are going to be so high that you discourage work and productivity. If you offer subsidies only to people with low incomes, well, the explicit taxes will be lower. So that doesn't uh, discourage Peter from working as much as uh, higher taxes do. But uh, you're gonna do, the, the work disincentives for Paul are going to be even greater because if Paul loses his subsidy when his income rises, then that's a high implicit marginal tax if he tries to climb the economic ladder. We see a, a number of those high implicit marginal taxes already in, uh, very, created by various uh, uh, means-tested programs, exacerbated by the Affordable Care Act, and so forth. But subsidies also make Paul care less about prices and value because he's spending other people's money rather than his own. And subsidies end up producing innovation because producers tend to focus more on that which is subsidized and to the, to the exclusion of that which is not subsidized. And so you don't see much innovation in, uh, in, in the area of that which is not subsidized. If, however, you want to, uh, if you help people afford medical care by reducing the price, you pretty much avoid all of those problems. Falling prices don't inhibit, <coughs> inhibit upward mobility, they facilitate upward mobility. Uh, if you drive down the price of healthcare, that helps both Peter and Paul you know, afford education and other things that help them climb the economic ladder. And falling healthcare prices don't create the sort of work disincentives that uh, high taxes and, uh, and means-tested programs do. In fact, probably the only downside of falling healthcare prices is that some high-cost providers will make mess less money and go out of business. And it's hard to get too upset about people who are overcharging the sick going out of business. So what's not to like? In fact, falling prices 
make all of our healthcare problems smaller. They, uh, they make health insurance more affordable. They reduce unmet medical need. Be, first, by making it possible for more people to afford the medical care that they need, but second, by saving, saving the rest of us money on healthcare so that we're wealthier and have more uh, to help those who still can't help themselves. And we see falling prices everywhere else in the economy. But this problem is bedeviled health economics. Why don't we see these falling prices, uh, that, that dynamic, in healthcare? We often hear that falling prices can't happen in healthcare because healthcare is special. Well, as it happens, my favorite takedown of this claim that healthcare is special came in an article by Jamie Robinson about, I think it was three, four years ago in a retrospective, uh, five years ago, in a, four or five years ago, in a retrospective of Kenneth Arrow's uh, 1964 article on uncertainty in the welfare economics of medical care. But however special healthcare might be, I think Professor Robinson's recent work shows that prices can fall in healthcare where consumers are cost conscious, where consumers have an incentive to, uh, to choose lower cost providers, to demand lower prices because they share in the savings. And uh, indeed, for all of the vaunted bargaining power of third party payers, uh, insurers and employers, these experiments show that cost conscious consumers do a better job of driving down prices uh, than third party payers do. And here I actually want to leap to the defense of some of those third party payers and uh, uh, Mark's uh, Wussonomics article brought this to mind. They're sort of over, or, or they're sort of in a tough spot. If you're an insurance company whose enrollees don't care about whatever savings you might achieve for them in terms of lower premiums, because they're not the ones paying the premiums because their employer is paying the premiums or, they have a, or, or they're heavily subsidized by the government, well then, you're going to have a very hard time negotiating those prices down yourself because you're going to have to say no to some providers. And if, 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 if your enrollees like that hospital or their doctor is excluded from the network, you're going to hear from them about it. And that's basically what happened in the mid-1990s when employers tried to use managed care tools to drive down or to, to uh, reduce uh, the prices they were paying for services and avoid unnecessary, uh, unnecessary uh, services. The backlash from, uh, came mostly from providers, but also from uh, workers who did not uh, see the savings from those, uh, uh, from those changes because the savings were not salient to them. Yes, uh, eventually it would have come back to them in the form of uh, higher wages, but that's just uh, too tenuous a connection for most people to, to make it. So Professor Robinson and his colleagues are right that uh, this particular form of uh, consumer cost consciousness that they're studying, the reference prices or, or, um, or reverse deductibles, will work for some conditions and not for others, and in some uh, circumstances and not others. But I think the broader implication of these experiments is consistent with the critique that free market advocates have brought against the U.S. healthcare sector for decades, which is that excessive third-party payment makes con uh, increases the cost of care by principally by making consumers care less about the prices of medical services and even about the value of the services that they're consuming. And federal, that's because federal and state governments, through tax policy, through entitlement policy, have done a lot to encourage third-party payment, so much that now in the United States, consumers on average only pay for 11 cents uh, on the dollar, uh, 11 cents for every dollar of medical care they consume, or I should say they pay directly uh, only 11 per, for only 11% of the medical care they consume. The rest comes 
from third-party payers. And so they're almost entirely unconcerned with the price or the efficiency, uh, the price of the medical care that they're getting, the efficiency of those providers. And even when the rare patient does want to ask about price information, well, the one thing that healthcare providers can't provide is a price quote. So we get a don't ask, don't tell pricing culture where uh, excessive prices put medical care out of reach for, um, uh, for patients for no other reason than government encouragement, a third-party payer, allows the providers to keep the prices that high. So these exper- but these experiments made consumers cost-conscious really at only one margin, <coughs> at the margin above whatever the reference price was. Above that, margin, uh, above that reference price, they're paying 100% of the marginal cost of whatever uh, services they consume. And these are the savings, the sort of savings that we saw. I mean, this is really dramatic, and I want to emphasize what Professor Robinson mentioned. When have you ever seen prices fall like this in healthcare uh, with, within two years of an experiment being deployed? And for laboratory tests, as much as 32%. And I think in the hip and knee replacement uh, reference pricing experiment, if you just broke out the high-cost hospitals, you had a separate article in uh, Health Affairs about this. If you just broke out the high-cost hospitals, the average reduction was uh, in, in price at the high-cost hospitals was 37%, or $16,000. $16,000 is enough to make a person who's poor not poor. These are significant savings that we're talking about. And it came from just making them cost-conscious at one margin. But what it suggests is if we make consumers cost-conscious at more margins, or at all margins, by changing who controls the healthcare dollars in the U.S. healthcare sector, yeah. instead of it being government and employers giving that money to consumers and letting them choose their own health plans, uh, then we would uh, make them cost-conscious at all margins. We'd encourage consumers to choose more efficient health insurance plans, plans that experiment with innovations like this, plans that, but also use other methods of keeping costs down, like greater reliance on mid-level clinicians, strategies like bundled payments and global budgeting that might be appropriate where reference pricing is not. And I th- think we might see uh, a rapid growth in health plans that use these sort of strategies instead of seeing what we saw when Kaiser Permanente tried to enter North Carolina a decade or more ago. What happened was Kaiser Permanente decided they were going to try to enter another state. They tried to attract as many employers as they could uh, because employers are the you know, major purchasers of, uh, of, of, of health insurance in the private sector. But they had a hard time doing it. They had a hard time selling uh, uh, their plans on employers uh, because the workers themselves would not see the savings. It was a very small fraction of workers in North Carolina and across the country who could both choose their own health plans and saw 100% of the savings uh, because that's just not how employers structure uh, health insurance. And the reason has a lot to do with uh, the fact that there's a tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance and a concomitant tax penalty on people who want to control the money, the part of their earnings that their employer controls and uses to purchase their medical care and, uh, and, and use that money to choose their own health plan. And so I think that uh, these experiments are relevant to this debate that's happening in Congress right now and uh, ha- happening up and down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. Because on one side of that debate, there are people who uh, uh, advocate uh, making health care affordable to people with low incomes by providing them a subsidy. We call them, uh, in the context of the ACA and repealing and replacing the ACA, we call these subsidies tax credits. They're mostly just checks that the government writes to insurance companies on the behalf of enrollees. Uh, 
And the idea is, well, we've got all these excessive prices for medical care and health insurance. The, uh, the, the, the premiums are so high. We'll deal with these excessive prices just by subsidizing them, by giving subsidies to people. There's another approach, uh, which is a, a little more consistent with, with these experiments, which is uh, to expand health savings accounts. Expand health savings accounts in a way that gives consumers that money that their employers are spending on their behalf. It's not an insignificant portion of their earnings for the typical worker with family coverage. It, it's an average $13,000. And if you expand health savings accounts the right way and so that the, you know, the worker can take possession of that part of their earnings and choose their own health plan, then they'll bring this sort of cost consciousness to every margin of the healthcare sector that uh, they bring to, to, the, to these margins uh, that Professor Robinson studied. And uh, by uh, expanding health savings accounts, you can reduce government and encouragement of third party payment, you can make consumers more, more cost conscious, and you can get those prices down. So I think that these experiments, again, are incredibly important. They're just one example of the sort of uh, health insurance innovations we'd see in a less regulated market. And I want to applaud Professor Robinson and his colleagues and his funders uh, for, for, con uh, for conducting these ex experiments and studying them so closely because I think they provide hope that we can make healthcare affordable for vulnerable Americans in the right way. Um, and I think these experiments bolster the case for ending government encouragement of third-party payment. So uh, that ends uh, the, uh, the, the, the presentations part of our event. And we uh, would like to uh, take your questions now. I want to encourage you uh, to um, wait for the microphone. First, please wait to be called on. Wait for the microphone uh, so that everyone in the audience and everyone watching at home can hear your question. I also want you to know we've, uh, we've, we've armed our staff with tranquilizer darts so that if your question is not actually a question or the question takes a little too long, they've been authorized to, to, to trank you after two minutes. So uh, with that, uh, uh, I want to encourage anyone uh, uh, to ask questions of our, of our panelists. Uh, I, I see two over here, one in the front row, and then we'll go two and then three, please. Uh, question for James Sang. Question for Professor Robinson on reference pricing. How would reference pricing affect the um, purchase of capital items? What I'm thinking of, for example, is MRI machines. Uh, one can imagine over a long period of time, reference pricing driving uh, makers to make lo lo more, less featured machines. But on the other hand, the Japanese government started off by telling Hitachi and Toshiba that their machines had to be cheaper than what was on the market. And so in Japan, which I know my wife got sick there recently, MRIs are much cheaper because the machines start off being much cheaper. Okay. Um, well, in certain sense, reference pricing is an application to the consumer fr net framework that uh, supply is a core principle of supply chain management, right? Uh, the B2B market, you pay for the, the cheaper thing. If it's not, unless it's better, the other one's better. Um, getting get back to healthcare, I think maybe the question would be um, if the, and this gets back to a point that Mark was making, if the consumer were more price sensitive and therefore shopped for the more uh, lower priced uh, procedure, test, drug, imaging, et cetera, what would be the uh, downstream implication of that for the life sciences industry behind that? And I think that, and this is a little bit the idealistic, uh, idealized view, is that it would create a business case for cost-reducing innovation. With the kind of insurance that we've had in the past, really the business case has been to produce new treatments and tests that are better but more expensive. 
because you get reimbursed, but they're better, and that's good for patient care. But that's been, and no wonder that we have a healthcare system which is getting better and better and better and more and more and more expensive. That's what we've got. That, the incentives were there. So uh, there's been only a, a weak incentive for um, innovation that reduces the cost of care because the, the innovator doesn't capture uh, that much new market share. Uh, and if the patient, if the benefit designs were done appropriately, reference pricing or something else, uh, that made the consumer uh, more cost conscious, it could create, it could spur and shift the venture capital funding, that's really what we're talking about here, towards a different kind of uh, innovation um, that would be, downstream effects would be to make things cheaper. And second row. So this sounds like a, <clears throat> sounds like a great idea, uh, and I'm all for making prices more visible in this area. It's, I think just making the prices visible is, is interesting, and I didn't know that New Hampshire had that policy. I'm interested in the results there. But, uh, but healthcare is a little different from buying dinner, and so I'm a little concerned that in some cases, you know, you have somebody who's a high-risk individual for a colonoscopy. Uh, they may, may be a good reason for them to have it in a hospital setting versus an ambulatory setting. So I'm curious how this system could accommodate those kinds of variations. Sure. sure. That's a very good question. All of the programs that I have any familiarity with all have an exemptions process uh, because um, they, in, in no case do they want uh, this to be a situation where a patient's getting a lower quality, you know, I mean, the quality is many dimensions, right? But I mean, a clinically lower quality, that's not what they're pushing for here. So um, they, uh, if, it, and typically, you know, the, the employers have no more courage than insurers, right, if you will. And so all it takes to get a, an exemption from reference pricing from the employers I'm talking about is a doctor saying, boom, my patient needs needs to go to the hospital because this clinical reason, okay? Uh, for the RETA, just what's the prevalence of this? And so for the RETA, the drug thing, uh, that the, the doctor's got to just fill out this, you know, check a couple boxes uh, that my patient needs the more expensive drug. Uh, about 1% of the prescriptions go, go to that, just for a ballpark uh, prescription. But I actually think that that's an important part of all reference pricing. Um, I think it's important for certain patients, and it's very important for the visibility. If this was a physician audience, I mean, there may be physicians here, but if this was a physician audience, that would have been the first, second, third, and fourth question. I mean, bing, 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 bing. You discussed this a little uh, earlier with regards to HMOs and, and, and the reaction from you know the actual participants in the program. Has there been any survey data for reference pricing uh, patients under a re uh, reference pricing regime? Uh, are they generally satisfied with their their plans, or is anything out like that yet? Uh, the question was: Has there been any patient satisfaction assessments of patients? And not to my knowledge, uh, that would be good. And also just. I think it would be great if someone would fund and conduct research and just how did they make their choices and how, how where were they and, and what was the, the logic. Um, the, the trend on where this stuff is going out there is, as you know, all insurers now are into price transparency and they all have on their website uh, prices of all the different providers in their network, to the, you know, et cetera. And the, the uptake of those prices, I mean, consumer t paying attention to that is rel relatively low. 
Uh, so some of them, what they're doing, they're combining that passive information thing with active outreach. So if you're scheduled for a procedure that's got to go through prior auth, any major procedure now, uh, or prior notification, they will reach out to you and say, ah, oh, you, you, I see you're going to get a colonoscopy. That's wonderful. Uh, and, I, and you are thinking about doing it at this clinic over here, that, which is wonderful. That's their that's covered benefit. That's all great. Um, uh, however, I want to point out to you that there's four more over here uh, that are also covered, included, and, the, and you would save, you know, $400 here and $600 there and $700 there. And, but you do what you want. But anyway, this I'm just, you know, telling you. Uh, and that is actually more effective because patients um, do respond to that. But the whole issue of how to support consumer choice you need incentives, but then you need, you need tools, you need supports. Um, because the reality of humans is that some people are better decision makers than others. And if we design a system that only works for the really good decision makers, there's going to be a backlash against that. Up front. Uh, thank you. I will say cheap is good as long as the providers are good. Uh, my question has to deal with how would you get patients educated about this kind of reform? Mr. Cannon talks about health savings accounts. You're talking about, um, both of Mr. Robinson and Mr. Pauly, talking about um, the differences of patients being able to know who their providers are. Health savings accounts, a lot of people like them because you can roll over what you don't use. But I don't see that you two are proposing the same kind of health plan, or I may be incorrect. I think when you talk about drugs, the drug list you put up there left out a lot of expensive medications for cancer patients and other patients. You have mainly psych meds up there. And Medicare, I mean, I'm Medicare. I, I think Medicare sucks. And I think many docs are opting out. So what do you do to replace that with what you're offering? And or could a health savings account be implemented into a Medicare program? Cheap is good, as long as the providers. So right. patients need to really do their homework and find out who the different docs are. That's what I think is important. All right, well, there are a number of dimensions of that question, but I'll pick up on one of them. And that is, um, uh, what about Medicare? And um, uh, this brings a little bit back to the uh, question in the con current political environment. I happen to read a, an interview with uh, Tom Price, the uh, the new d d director of head of HHS, and uh, he was um, as a surgeon, as you know, uh, surgeons tend to not like the Medicare fee schedule. It's significantly below the the um, private insurer fee schedules and what the surgeons believe that they they deserve to be paid. And so uh, he was interested in, he, in this interview uh, in, uh, implementing um, or permitting balanced billing for Medicare. Uh, and therefore, that the, the Medicare would pay whatever it pays, its fee schedule to the doctor, but the doctor could charge uh, whatever the doctor wanted and the patient would pay the difference. Okay? Uh, that's, that's called balanced billing. And that gets us a little bit back to what Mark was talking about earlier of, of an indemnity insurance. And obviously these things sound similar to reference pricing, all right? The, 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 the sponsor pays a certain amount and then the patient pays a certain amount. And I think they are. I would uh, distinguish um, at least one aspect of that, how they're different. 
these reference pricing programs all start with a chassis on a chassis where the health plan or a PBM goes out there and negotiates a price with the provider. That's the maximum. Then the, then the employer comes in and puts a reference limit below that, and the patient pays the difference. Pure balance billing allows the physician to uh, charge whatever, 200% of Medicare, 900% of Medicare, 4,000% of Medicare, and the whole difference above Medicare fee is, pay, is charged to the patient. And that is a recipe for, if I may say so in my uh, worldview, a recipe for abuse. And we've certainly seen all these great articles in the New York Times where, for example, a patient's going into surgery, they are unconscious, an assistant surgeon comes in, does something, is an out-of-network surgeon, pay, charges $30,000 for whatever that person did. There was no consumer choice in this whole thing. The patient was unconscious the whole time. Uh, and the, the doctor was not constrained by any negotiated rate because he was an out-of-network doctor. And it was just like, it's just front-page New York Times type material. So I would think, if I were advising... Dr. Price, and he actually has not asked for my advice, uh, um, is that uh, if he wanted to get very far with his plan without enraging uh, people say, what a man, I'm going to get exposed to a $30,000 bill, would be to say, well, maybe the doctors could uh, identify themselves as they, their price is some uh, percent above Medicare, so it could be 25% above Medicare, 50% above Medicare, 75%, but then you, it would max out no more than 200% of Medicare or whatever, and then the balance billing could happen in that, that range, but no one gets to charge a Medicare beneficiary $100,000 for a colonoscopy. I mean, boom. Um, this, this is, yeah. I, I wanted to make a comment about uh, health savings accounts, and uh, so that was actually on my list of things that are like uh, reference pricing, not the health savings account. That kind of actually confuses things because it's tax shielded and attenuates incentives to save money. But the high deductible part, uh, if you're within the deductible, uh, you uh, obviously have an incentive to try to find a low cost seller, just like you do with reference pricing. And not only that, if you find one lower than what would have been the reference pricing, you save the money. So it's got a two-sided saving device, whereas reference pricing only allows you to save money if you go, if you don't go above the reference price, but not if you go below the reference price. So, uh, and uh, some of the more uh, 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 enlightened uh, uh, health plans that offer high deductible health plans uh, will also offer information to people when they're below the deductible on where to find low prices or even on the prices that they have negotiated <coughs> as an insurer with a lot more clout than John Q. Public has uh, to, to provide that particular service. So uh, um, you're exposed to somewhat more risk with a high deductible health plan than you are with a reference price plan. Um, again, my my uh, mantra was let, let a thousand flowers bloom, let people choose what they like. I don't know if I would choose a high deductible health plan. It's kind of like tattoos, you know, they're okay for some guys, but not for me. But, uh, but, uh, uh, but if people want to choose them and uh, make their choice under that setting, and that actually is one of the most rapidly growing kinds of insurance at the moment, um, God bless them. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that we are putting this event out on the internet. So, Jamie, you will be hearing from Secretary Price soon, I'm sure. Uh, David Hyman, second row here. 
Thanks. So this is really interesting work in big effects, and uh, that's great. I guess given the sort of constraints that you've identified under where this might work, I'm just asking what's your best estimate, at least to place some boundaries on what share of the healthcare dollar uh, is susceptible to reference pricing? Are we talking 10% of the private market, or are we talking 60% or some number? I, I, I assume you wouldn't go higher than 60, but maybe I'm wrong. Uh, I haven't done that calculation myself, but some others have done it, and they've put it at 30. Um, but once again, you, if, 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 we, if we call reference pricing defined contribution, which it really is, right? Then you could say it could be applied in different ways to all parts of healthcare. It could be applied at the, as Mark was talking about, well, let's say we had different health plans, some of which had, uh, which uh, covered all providers and all the technology, but at a high price, high premium, and others had l lower uh, technology and providers, but a low premium. And uh, then we could have defined, we could have defined contribution underlying the, the sponsorship of the, the premium. That would bring it into the health plan level. What I think that, that reference pricing in some sense really embodies is the fact that this Defined contribution at the level of the health plan isn't enough. That, that, that patients really are not willing, can't cogitate, and then are not willing to be held later to choices made at the time of enrollment. Uh, to make a choice at the time of enrollment, what exactly should I, what cancer drug should I be eligible for if I get a cancer I can't even pronounce today? Okay, people, it's just... Okay, so really we need it at the level of the choice of health plan, of the managed competition model, but then also, especially within, with broad network plans, people do like choice, and these um, reference pricing really goes well with PPO designs, by the way, it's a PPO network, or uh, it could go with Medicare fee-for-service, it's, it's a less naturally an HMO narrow network thing, because with narrow network, you just say, well, all the high-priced providers are out, we're done. Right. By the way, CalPERS does have HMO as well as P This was all PPO CalPERS. They have HMO, but like in the state of California, what they did for orthopedic surgery, they just contracted with 16 hospitals. That's our network for ortho surgery on the HMO side, and uh, all the other hospitals are simply out. Whereas on the PPO side, they have like, okay, they, they start out with about 40-something. Now they've got about 60-something because of price reductions that are low-priced, and then the rest are you know above the reference price you pay out of pocket kind of thing. And so it depends on... On that. Uh, but anyway, back to the main point is I think that reference pricing could be used in a targeted fashion uh, even after plan enrollment. It could be they, they want to do it now within PPOs for ACOs. If you join the ACO within the PPO, you also you have sort of a defined contribution to get into that. You have a benefit to get into that. So I, th I think that the issue of, of the design of cost sharing, of consumer incentives, is partly... Uh, this, um, let's call it horizontal. You know, there's high deductible, there's reference pricing, there's, there's a variety of different options here, co-pays and tiered co-pays and whatnot. But it's also vertical. It's what level, choice of health plan, choice of provider organization within health plan, choice of referral specialist within provider organization, choice of drug or device within that, um, and some of those things, the patient should not have a financial incentive because it's not the patient making the choice, it's the doctor. But other cases, patients should have an incentive. So I think that uh, it's really how, how creative, let it, and I'm sure you all, you know, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let the, uh, you, you, when I give this talk to entrepreneurs, they're like, oh yeah, I see a business model for me over here in this little corner of this, you know, 
I can make, I can make money off of this uh, doing this. First row, down here, please. Uh, I find the um, analogy between reference pricing and uh, defined benefits interesting. And I'd like to ask a question of uh, Dr. Cannon about the large health savings accounts yeah. idea. Um, just as in the pension area, there's been a move from defined benefits more toward 401k type plans. It wasn't clear to me whether your idea of larger health savings accounts was just relaxing the upper limit to employee contributions or whether it would also include a feature of fund matching by the employer. Well, I don't really like the language of defined contributions when it comes to, or contributions at all when, when it comes to the amounts that employers are putting toward employee health benefits, because that makes it sound like it's a gift rather than part of their compensation, part of the, part of the compensation that the employee earned. And that $13,000 average quote, employer contribution to a family health plan, uh, to family health plans, is $13,000 that the worker earned and that the employer would have to give to the worker in cash, wages, or other compensation if the employer were not providing health benefits. And uh, Mark's done some of the work establishing this. This is actually part of employee compensation. So I don't, I don't like calling it a defined contribution because it makes it sound like your employer is giving you a gift when they're actually giving you something that you earned. And the problem with the, the, the current tax treatment of employer-paid premiums is that either you give that $13,000 to your employer and let them choose your health plan, or you take it as taxable income and effectively have to pay a penalty on it. Maybe depending on your marginal rate, you might have to pay $4,000 in tax on that $13,000. And so there's this effective penalty if you want to control that money yourself. So the idea behind expanding health savings accounts is to allow the worker to take that $13,000 as wages uh, and put it in a tax-free account so that they are not seeing an increase in their tax liability just because they want to control that portion of their earnings. And then they can, uh, with additional changes to, to uh, cur current law, they could then purchase insurance uh, with that, with that $13,000 tax-free. They could choose an indemnity plan. They could choose a plan with reference pricing. They could choose a plan that uses uh, uh, bundled payments or global budgets or so forth. Uh, and you'll get a lot more innovation in health insurance design uh, and a lot more downward pressure on prices is, is the idea there. And I believe the gentleman next to you had a question and then the gentleman on the third row will be our last question, please. Okay, um, I just wanted to ask briefly, probe a little bit more on the idea that uh, there really aren't quality differences across many of these and I'm no expert. Uh, this gentleman referenced an example where perhaps there'd be an exemption, exemption that you said uh, that would come up. It, it seems like if there is some competition out in the uh, insurance market, uh, sometimes self-insurers, sometimes insurance companies, uh, you seem to be pointing to what appears to be a free lunch out there. And uh, why isn't everybody doing this? You talked briefly about it. But it, it would seem to suggest that the consumers, in some sense, are valuing the, the ability to be insured so that they could go to a somewhat higher priced entity. 
if these really were all just widgets, everybody's going to benefit from a scheme like this, I would think. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, perhaps uh, Dr. Pauly also, about this issue of are these really just um, unjustified high price variation across uh, extremely similar products, uh, and that's all because consumers just don't care at all, because I would like to think the insurance companies would step in and control that uh, otherwise. <clears throat> Uh, my guess is that the, the, the observed price variation is uh, a mix of uh, – uh, is associated with quality not at all in some cases, and in other cases it is associated with unmeasured quality differences. I think uh, when you're talking about uh, drugs which are identified down to the molecular level, the NDA, you can't give me a quality argument on that one. It's just the same drug. Uh, it is totally. I've worked with drug data. If you want to see, if you want to see just how bizarre healthcare is, you go look at claims data for pharmaceuticals and what is charged. You go down what is charged, pharmacy by pharmacy, right down Massachusetts Avenue, and you would just be blown away. Um, but. When it comes to surgical procedures or colonoscopy or something like that, mm, you know, I don't know. Okay, so um, but right. Right now, there really is not a business case for <clears throat> providers to really prove that they are better quality because they don't get a better price because of that. They can get, just charge a better price if they want to charge a better price. There's no one stopping them. Prices are not based on quality. Right? So in a, in, a, in a world, the kind of world that... that um, Mark was describing a, a better world, uh, there would be variation in quality, uh, and it would be very reflected in variation in price. And then uh, for some of, the, some of those dimensions of quality, we would all agree that it's a, an optional thing and patients can pay up or not pay up. And for others, we would say, well, you know what, actually, uh, we do want the patients to have access to the good quality. And so if they, we will somehow collectivize that decision or something. And that would be, you know, different people can have a different point of view on that question about, uh, I would just say that the United States of America is not ready for a discussion about, explicit discussion about poor people should get lower quality care than rich people. I mean, it's just not ready for that discussion. Um, even though they do. They do. Oh, I, I mean, <laughs> not, he said explicit, not explicit. Yeah, yeah, explicit. Not explicit. yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, also, I would just point out that, that a little bit the politics, like Safeway. Safeway got into this because they, they know, like, just like everybody else, there's a lot of inappropriate and unnecessary and low quality health care being delivered out there. But they know that their employees don't believe that. And that their employees believe that whatever my doctor told me is true and is high quality, even though that's obviously false. Okay? And if, it's, if the employee is going to choose, who's the employee going to believe? The employer or the doctor? The doctor. No question. So trying to fight doctors on appropriateness is a complete loser. One, where, where, do they have, where do they have an angle? Well, all their employees in their daily life are shoppers. I want to buy a blue shirt. Well, I love this blue shirt looks like that blue shirt. This one's cheaper. I'll buy the cheaper one. People, we do that every day. And so they focused on those things where they said where the, the, the quality differences are 
are either zero or, or small. And then we're going to put in this reference pricing to train, the, and we're going to start on small ticket things like these lab tests, five bucks, 20 bucks. This isn't going to you know, rattle the world, but it's to get the people thinking about healthcare the way they think about everything else in their life which is, you know, we apple orange, we look at the price, we smell, you know, whatever, and then we choose, you know? And we can do that in healthcare as well. Healthcare is different, but it ain't that different. Last question, sir. H.P. Carlos Vata, walking. Kind of a different question. The, the destruction of our healthcare system started with Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 30s, and it seems to be finished off now with Obamacare and Trump care will be no better. Shouldn't Cato speak in favor of complete separation of state and healthcare? And can any of the speakers suggest how that might look like if we go back to get the government out of it? Well, speaking as a Cato scholar, uh, we have. I mean, and and the you know we've. Uh, we date the problems in our healthcare sector earlier, or the beginning of government uh, intervention in our healthcare sector even earlier than Franklin Delano Roosevelt. It was at the, about 100 years ago at the turn of the last century where states began uh, licensing clinicians. And if you look at the economic research, the yes, everyone wants a high quality doctor. Uh, it's not clear that licensing improves quality. I think there's a powerful case that <coughs> licensing inhibits health care quality, but everyone agrees that it increases the cost of care. So we would go all the way back to licensing, and we've, we've published on how states should eliminate licensing laws and steps they could take shy of that if they're unwilling to do that yet, but that that is the ideal. And, and, and the reason is not just because you know, people want to uh, have... Uh, uh, voluntary exchanges between consenting adults, they should be able to do so, but also because uh, you'll get better and more affordable and uh, more secure access to health care, um, particularly for the most vulnerable. would be a perfect situation, but you would have fewer people falling through the cracks than you do under our current health care sector or before the Affordable Care Act or, 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 or after it. Um, but that said, that even uh, I think most Cato scholars you'll talk to do want the government to play a role in healthcare, enforcing contracts, punishing tort feasors. The medical malpractice system may be the only thing that's standing between patients and unsafe care sometimes. And, uh, and, and so it's not that we want no government to play no role, we want it to play uh, no special role in healthcare that it doesn't play in other sectors of the economy. So I don't know if you wanted to add to that. Well, I guess my, I. I was in favor of Obamacare compared to the status quo ante, and I think the government does have a role in um, affecting the health care of um, low-income populations. Uh, the, then the argument is kind of where do you draw the line on who's low-income and who isn't, and in my view, Obamacare drew the line a bit too high. Massachusetts drew it at 300% of poverty line. That sounds more like it to me, but the general, and the, pre the premise for that is, um, I don't know about you, but at least I care about the health of my fellow human beings, especially if they're my neighbors or they're my fellow citizens, maybe not so much further abroad. Uh, if you're Scrooge McDuck, uh, maybe you don't care, and uh, so you wouldn't wouldn't support government intervention. But I think I think you need <laughs> you need to imagine that um, 
uh, at least a clean conscience is one of the things that I had hoped I would get from Obamacare. I did get a clean conscience on um, subsidies for the uninsured, except that it was mishandled so badly, a whole lot of the uninsured were left behind. But then the heavy regulatory burden that accompanied it, which was because it was mostly written by lawyers, I, f I felt almost undid the good that had been done by the subsidy program. So that's my own personal opinion. But And, and I guess my, my main point on that is that is a personal opinion. There's no scientific principle that can settle it. It's sort of how you feel about other people. Well, um, I'm not one to give advice to who, what, what Cato should, should do or not do, but I would just point out, just as, if I'm, as long as I'm speculating, I think there's a, there's a tr quite a possibility that the role of gov government programs as sponsors of health insurance will be increasing rather than decreasing in coming years. Uh, the employment-based uh, insurance sector continues to shrink. The individual market, which the Obama uh, uh, care tried to structure and grow, is um, quite likely going to take a beating uh, because of adverse selection and other things, which over time would lead to uh, demands for expansion of Medicare down to uh, younger ages and to Medicaid to higher income levels. It's very easy to predict that. So I, I might suggest that one research uh, topic would be how to help design these government-sponsored programs in a way that in, in, inhibits as little as possible the free functioning of markets. And uh, uh, just to go back to reference pricing, it's reference pricing is just one thing, but reference pricing did come out of CalPERS as public sector employees, et cetera. Uh, they just had a budget that they had trying to live within, and they create, tried to create incentives to get the private market to be more pri the, the consumer more price conscious and, and make the provider more price competitive. Um, and it wasn't a panacea. It was limited by various different things. So um, uh, that's what I would um, – otherwise you're going to get – you might be just heading into a real depression mode here coming up. Um, I mean, let me say it right now. Medicated 120 million enrollees. Just, just let me put that number out there. You think about that for a while. Um, and uh, how could we make that – how could we make that uh, work in, while, while, while creating incentives for individuals and for providers and manufacturers? Okay. I want to thank our speakers again and thank all of you for coming here. We have uh, lunch, lunch for you. will be held on the second level in the George Yeager Conference Center. That is up the spiral staircase. Restrooms are on the second floor on your way to lunch. Just look for the yellow wall. And thank you again. <laughs>